Well, amen. Hey, welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. My name is Dustin. I get to be one of the pastors here. If you would, grab your Bibles. Open up to John chapter 18. If you don't have a print Bible, that's okay. Maybe just pull up the Bible on your phone. We're looking at John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 16 uh, this morning and go through verse 37. Now, if this is your first Sunday here, welcome. We're about to finish up our year-long study on the book of John. We'll finish at the end of August. Uh, but today is a, a somber passage. It's the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us in sort of the most gut-wrenching section of uh, the gospel, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's start in sort of the second half of verse 16. This is John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. So they took Jesus, and when he went out bearing his own cross, he went to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lot for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Uh, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray together and keep that Bible open in front of you. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that you would be here with us and we know that you are uh, because where two or more are gathered, you are there with us. Father, would we see the glory of your plan of redemption? Uh, Father, thank you that you sent your son to die for us, that we might live with him. 
Father, we ask in the name of Jesus then that each one of us would see and know the power of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As well as we look at this somber passage in John 19, uh, there's a question each one of us has to ask themselves to really understand what's going on in the gospel. Uh, That simple question is simply, why did Jesus have to die? (laughs) Have you ever asked yourself that? Or have you ever sat in a Sunday school class or reflected on uh, your faith in Christ and asked, why did Jesus have to die anyway? Uh, You know, uh, Desiderius Erasmus was a famous scholar uh, hundreds of years ago. And uh, Erasmus uh, is world famous as a scholar. And he wrote a a wonderful book called In Praise of Folly. And in that book, he famously asks the question. He says, why does Jesus have to come as a human? Why couldn't he have been a melon? Or why couldn't he have just been a piece of fruit? Why did he have to die as a human? Uh, Stripped of his clothing, beaten and bloodied and bruised in front of his mother. What was the Lord up to? Uh, I'm not speaking hyperbolically when I say that Jesus is the most important human to ever walk this earth. I mean, you don't even really need to be a Christian to understand that Jesus is the most famous, the most influential, and the most world-changing human to ever walk on our planet. Um, And if you listen to the teachings of his apostles, and if you even listen to his own words, you'll know that Jesus, the most important man, saw that the most important work His decisive act with his life, the goal of his life, was to accomplish his death on a cross. So why did Jesus have to die? Why did the most important man in history see this as the culmination of his life? Uh, I mean, just consider this. I mean, early, early on in the Gospel of John, like last fall, we looked at Jesus' first miracle. Remember when he turns the water into wine at the wedding? His mother Mary comes up to him and she says, uh, there's a problem, we need your help. And how does Jesus respond? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we get right there, uh, you know, the first reference to Jesus is thinking about the hour of his death. Because as you read the Gospel of John, anytime Jesus says, my hour, he doesn't just mean his life. What he means is the hour of his death. So even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, even in the wedding at Cana, Jesus understands that his life is building up to the cross. Uh, The Gospel of Luke does it in a different way. Uh, John talks about Jesus' hour. What Luke does is no matter where Jesus is at any moment, whether he's going north, south, east, or west, Jesus will always be going towards Jerusalem. It's a fun project. If you get into the Gospel of Luke and you just start trying to figure out when he turns left into Samaria, you'll know geographically he's not facing Jerusalem. So what's Luke's point? Why does he keep saying that no matter which way Jesus goes, he's always going to Jerusalem? Well, it's because Luke understands that the goal of Jesus' life, whether he's going into Samaria and sharing the Gospel with Samaritans, or he's sharing the gospel in Judea, he knows that Jesus's real destination is Jerusalem, where he is going to die on a cross for the sins of his people. This is the most important act in the most important man's life of all time. So what is it then that Jesus is trying to accomplish? Uh, Put it a different way, what is the power of the cross? What was Jesus doing? Uh, To sort of understand that, I do need to help sort of flesh out the context a little bit. Uh, You may know some of these details in part, but um, if we're going to preach on the the death of Christ, we do need to understand um, sort of all of the gory details and the heart-wrenching details that lead up to Jesus' death. Uh, You know, think about it this way. On Thursday night before he dies, on Good Friday, on Thursday night, 
Uh, Jesus is uh, betrayed by Judas. Remember, uh, Judas leaves to go betray him. And Jesus goes to the garden and he asks his disciples to do what? He goes to the garden and he says, disciples, will you please, anybody know? Pray for me. And what do they do? They all fall asleep. And then when the disciple who had left returns, he's coming with a great army of men with clubs and spears and weapons. And he's betrayed by a kiss. And Jesus famously says, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And he absolutely does. And then how do the disciples respond then? Well, they all abandon him. They all run away. Uh, One of them in Mark even runs away naked. He's so scared. So here Jesus experiences the rejection of Judas who betrays him and he's abandoned by his disciples. Uh, Even Peter, who can talk a good game, is going to deny him three times before the dawn. Uh, We know that he's then taken to this sort of like travesty of justice. He's taken to a man named Annas and then Caiaphas. He's taken before the Sanhedrin. Uh, He is, he's slapped and he's beaten uh, by these people. And at the early morning after they've condemned him to death, And after they falsely accused him, anyone here ever been falsely accused? Anyone ever had your life ruined by false accusations? That was what Jesus' experience was that night. People were lying, bold-faced lying about him. Well, then they take him to Pilate, and they demand that Pilate kills him. And Pilate, you know, as we learned last week, doesn't really think Jesus has done anything wrong. And if you read John 19 before our passage, what Pilate does initially is Pilate ends up having him flogged. Uh, There were three types of beatings that the Romans would administer. One was just sort of like your generic run-of-the-mill, you know, I'm just going to beat you because you done messed up. But then there was a third and ultimate kind of beating, a scourging, they used a different word for, and that was the beating that would oftentimes kill people. And uh, the, the, the gruesome part where, you know, your whole back would be exposed and entrails would be falling out and you could see bone. Well, the first time uh, Pilate sees Jesus, he has Jesus just beaten and then, you know, famously, uh, the, they, they take his clothes off and they, you know, they, they flog him on his back. And then the Roman guards, they take Jesus and they do what? Anybody remember? They put a purple robe on him. And the clothing thing is going to be important, so just remember that. They put a purple cloak on him. They twist together a crown of thorns. And they force it on his head. They blindfold him. And then they beat him and they say, well, who was it that beat you? You know, if you're so great, who, who hit you? What's his name? And then, of course, they give him a scepter, you know, some sort of staff, and they, they act like he's some sort of great king, right? He's got this purple cloak on, he's got this painful crown on, and they give him a scepter. Well, then they take the scepter and they start hitting him over the head with it so that the thorns go deeper into his skull. And then they bring him back to Pilate. And Pilate presents this bloodied and beaten and humiliated king with his own crown and scepter and purple robe. And he says to the religious leaders here, this is the guy you're scared of? Why don't you let him go? Like, you're, you're worried about this guy? Look what I just did to him. This is your king, the guy that you're worried about? Look what I just did to him. Release him. Let, you know, uh, the other guy, let the thief go. And in Jesus' experience, what happens next? The crowds cry what? Crucify him. This isn't enough. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate washes his hands and then demands that Jesus be crucified And so then they remove that purple robe from Jesus. They take off the crown of thorns. And just imagine being beaten and whipped and then having a big, heavy cloth thing put on your back and then having it ripped off. It would have reopened those wounds. And then they gave him his true scourging. Uh, It only stopped when the Roman uh, torturers would be too exhausted to keep going or if they didn't think the person would survive long enough to get the cross. 
uh, to where he would be executed. So Jesus is mercilessly beaten. And then Mark tells us that, you know what they did next? Before they make him carry his cross, Mark tells us that they then put his original clothes back on. Then they marched him. And as he marches through the crowds, there's jeers. People are yelling at him. He collapses under the weight and the pain. And a man named Simon of Cyrene ends up carrying it the last leg of the trip. He's nailed to the cross. And of course, before they put him on the cross, they would have removed his original clothing, reopening all of the wounds on his back. So his back would have been totally raw up against the wood of the cross behind him. And then, of course, he... Uh, has his clothing removed, and there is an open question. Uh, the, the gospel writers, um, as, as good Jewish people, would not have spoken to this, uh, but um, Roman centurions, they typically never kept anyone's clothes on when they crucified them, right? They're murdering, and they're trying to embarrass the man and, hu- and dehumanize him and degrade him. So it's possible Jesus was naked. Uh, possibly he had a loincloth on because it was a Jewish high feast, and Jewish people would have found that uh, too offensive. Um, so Jesus, regardless, is humiliated, And then he dies in front of his mom. So what I want you to grasp in recounting that is um, there's this other side to what's going on that is also profoundly moving, which is as Jesus is being marched through the town, what does Jesus also say? Anyone know in Luke? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And even when he's on the cross, he looks at his mother, Mary, (laughs) and he says, woman, Um, Behold your son. And what he's saying is he's telling John, our author, uh, when I'm gone, I expect you to take care of my mom as if she were your own mother. Uh, Jesus is demonstrating his profound love, not just for humanity, but also even for his own mom. He says, Father, forgive them. He says, John, take care of my mother for me. And then in John, it tells us in verse 30 that Um, After uh, experiencing all of this cruelty and experiencing the wrath of God falling on him on the cross, uh, John wants you to know that Jesus then says, it is finished, and that Jesus gave up his spirit. Uh, No one killed Jesus. Uh, Directly, Jesus knew this was going to happen, and Jesus, uh, because of God's providence, allowed it to happen to him. And so Jesus gives up his spirit. That's John's point, is, is his the emphasis is on Jesus is still in control. Humanity is awful and they are cruel, but Jesus is still the king. He gave up his spirit. You know, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for my sheep. It's John's point. He gave up his spirit. So, you know, that, I know that's awful to think about, right? It, um, if you've got anything like a human heart, what that does is that like rototills the hard soil of your heart, right? That should be... Um, uh, breaking your heart to think that this is happening to Jesus, the only truly sinless man. So what is it that Jesus is thinking that he has finished? Why does he say it is finished? Well, what's the it? What does he come to accomplish? Well, uh, to understand that, you've got to know the God of the Bible. To really grasp what's going on in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially in his death, you've got to understand the God of the universe. And uh, he is unique. He's unlike any other God of any other religion. He is completely just and will punish sin. And yet he is infinitely and perfectly merciful and forgiving. Uh, He's not just judging and judgmental and going to exist in wrath. He's also exceedingly, never-endingly merciful. Uh, It's not an either or, it's a both and. So really what that means, friends, 
is that the God of the Bible, that you and I, he's holy. He's higher and above anyone we've ever met. Uh, his holiness makes us uh, stand in awe of him. He's complete justice and complete mercy. Uh, so what is it then that Jesus is accomplishing? Um, how is God demonstrating his justice and his mercy? Well, let me just sort of give you three simple points uh, to understand what Jesus is accomplishing. Now, um, a great pastor, John Piper, has a very famous book uh, called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And uh, I'd encourage you all to read it. I'm only gonna give you three reasons why Jesus came to die. Piper gives you 50. Uh, but here are the three that I want you specifically to focus on this morning. Now, the first one is gonna be a little different than you're thinking. It may not be where you immediately go, but it is where John goes in John chapter 18. And that is the first reason uh, for why Jesus died is because he came to fulfill the scriptures. Uh, he came to fill them full, to fulfill the scriptures. Notice that John says this over and over and over again. So what is it? What are these scriptures? Well, for us, we call it the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Bible. So what is it that Jesus is fulfilling? Uh, well, if you read the Old Testament, you'll know that in books like Isaiah, Isaiah looks forward to the day that all of the nations, all of the people groups will somehow miraculously be reconciled to the God of Israel. They will come to Jerusalem and they will learn a pure language and they will say, come, let us learn from the Lord righteousness and truth and justice. Uh, Isaiah in chapter 19 looks forward to the day that Egypt and Assyria are no longer Israel's enemies, but they are co-heirs of the kingdom with Israel. That's an incredible chapter. Isaiah holds out hope for the reconciliation of all the people groups of the world to the one true God. And one of the ways, the main way that God is going to accomplish this great work that Isaiah is foreseeing is he says there will be a servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, who is going to come and inaugurate the kingdom of God. And the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be Wonderful. Anybody know the Christmas song? Counselor, Everlasting Father the Prince of Peace. But the amazing thing about this Messiah, as Isaiah will call him the Messiah in Hebrew, the promised one, the anointed one, is that he would also strangely, paradoxically suffer. He would be simultaneously exalted and simultaneously uh, uh, marred beyond human semblance. It's a, it's a strange prophecy. In Isaiah 50, Isaiah is talking about this man and this, uh, this Messiah is talking and he says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It's the Messiah talking. And then just two chapters later in Isaiah 52, uh, the Lord says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But yet as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And yet, so shall he sprinkle many nations clean. And then in some of the most famous verses in the entire Old Testament, just three or four verses later, Isaiah goes on and he says these words about this suffering servant. He says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, all throughout John chapter 19, what's happening is Jesus is fulfilling all of the promises and the prophecies of Isaiah. That somehow this Messiah, this branch of David, this son of David, is going to bring the nations to the only true God. He's going to make them his own true people, and yet it's going to come at a great cost to this servant. He would be pierced and crushed, not because he's a sinner, but because of the sins of his people. And even during this, he will always remain silent. Now, so, of course, that's what's happening in John 19 when he talks to Pilate. This is happening all throughout his trial with the religious leaders. He never gives a word. He remains silent. When Herod mocks him, he doesn't respond to Herod. He's fulfilling Isaiah. But that's not the only passage that John wants you to be thinking of. Uh, notice right there in your passage in verse 24 uh, that John actually quotes from the Old Testament. Do you see it right there? It's when Jesus' clothes, remember the clothes thing, when his clothes are taken and they're, they're uh, divided up among these soldiers. And John says it's important to know that because that fulfills the scripture. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then if you scroll down in verse 28, you'll notice again that John wants you to see that Jesus died to fulfill scripture. In verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Now, to understand that, you just need to know that Jesus uh, is pulling from Psalm 22. Uh, John doesn't record this, but the other Gospels do when Jesus is on the cross. He quotes Psalm 22.1. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Aloy, aloy, leme shabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Psalm 22, it says that this suffering person who's surrounded by vicious people, they're going to divide his clothes up and that his tongue is going to stick to the roof of his mouth, which is why Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And it's why they divide his clothes up. It's because Jesus is fulfilling that Psalm of David, Psalm 22. Uh, David suffered, and now his true son, the son of David, is suffering and filling full this psalm. And that's not the only one I want you to see, uh, because that's not the only one John wants you to see. Uh, notice, strangely, uh, that after Jesus dies, John wants you to focus on the fact, and he, and he takes a long time, sort of, if you look at the word count, he spends a long time making sure that you know that Jesus' bones weren't broken. Did you catch that? He spends sort of an inordinate amount of time, in our opinion, on, on focusing on the fact that Jesus' legs weren't broken. I mean, do you really care if Jesus' legs were or were not broken? Does it really matter to you that the other guys on the cross had their legs broken? Not really. They would do that because, you know, they wanted to get on with their death, right? And if you break your leg, you can't push yourself up and breathe anymore, right? But when they come to Jesus, they don't break his legs. What's going on? Well, to understand that, you've got to see in verse 31 that Jesus dies at a very specific time of the year, we know when Jesus died because he dies at Passover. He dies on Passover. 
And John wants you to be thinking about that. Look, since it was the day of preparation, that is Friday, you prepare for Sabbath, which would have been Saturday. And the next day was a high day, right? Passover week. You see, the reason that Jesus's legs aren't broken and the reason Jesus dies on Passover is because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb. If you know the Old Testament story, uh, I know we're getting really into the Old Testament, but you know, sometimes when you drink from a fire hydrant, you end up drinking more water than you thought you could, right? In Exodus, we know that God's people, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt. And so God un, uh, unleashes his wrath against the Egyptians. And in the final plague, uh, God says his spirit is going to come in and enact justice and punish the Egyptians for what they've done. But God is just, and even the Israelites stand to be punished by the spirit. And so what God tells his people to do is what? He says, take a lamb, take a spotless lamb, and then sacrifice it to the Lord Make sure you don't break any of its bones. And then you paint the doorframe of your house in the blood of the lamb. And when the spirit comes, it'll see the blood of the lamb. It'll know that you are marked as one of my people. And you will not know God's wrath. And now the ultimate lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world is shedding his blood on Passover. You see, Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Uh, that was what Passover was always about, that there would come an end to the sacrificial system. One day there would be no more need to sacrifice the Paschal lambs because the ultimate lamb of God would be sacrificed for us. And the wrath of God would never fall on the believer who is washed clean in the blood of the lamb. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ our Passover lamb. Jesus is filling full all of the imagery of the Passover. Now, there's one more I want you to see because John wants you to see it, and it's right there in verse 37. Look at verse 37. Again, I mean, John is really hammering this. Jesus has the fulfillment of Scripture. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, of course, you, you're probably familiar with Passover. Most of you are sort of aware of that major holiday. I mean, the whole book of Exodus is sort of uh, dedicated to that story of how God saved his people out of Egypt. But this verse, they will look on him whom they have pierced, it comes from sort of an obscure book of the Bible. Uh, some of you, you know, probably have never read it. Uh, and it comes from a, a small minor prophet called Zechariah. But John knows intimately what the book of Zechariah is about. And at the end of Zechariah, Zechariah says this really odd statement, and it's in Zechariah 12. You know what he says in Zechariah 12? Uh, he's looking forward to the restoration of all things. And God is speaking in Zechariah 12, 10. And this is what, notice what God says and focus on the pronouns. This is God speaking. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Anyone know that old great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood? 
There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Anyone know that great hymn? That great hymn is based on Zechariah 12. And that's what John is trying to get you to see. That God, the creator of this universe, has become a man. And when he is pierced, God says, when you look on me whom you have pierced, then you'll get it. Then you'll weep. Then you'll see what is really going on and what the power of the cross is. And I will cleanse all of your sin in unrighteousness away because there will be a fountain open to clean you. See, this is what is in John's mind. John knows the Old Testament intimately. And he says, part of the reason why Jesus came to die is to fulfill scripture. The other two things, we've already sort of seen them. The second thing, the second reason Jesus came to die was simply to receive the punishment that you and I deserve. Uh, this is all over Isaiah. This is all over the New Testament. Uh, Jesus was perfectly sinless. He never did anything wrong, though there was no deceit in his mouth, uh, though he never lied, uh, never cursed anyone. What happens? He's punished for our sins. Uh, our sins are on him. And the punishment that you and I deserve, the wrath of God, falls on him, not on the believer. <laughs> uh, Jesus came so that our iniquity would be on him. Uh, he would be crushed, not for his sins, but for our sins. And then, of course, on the other side of that, we see not just God's justice, his desire to punish sin. We see his incredible mercy. And really, that's just the third thing I want you to see. And that is Jesus dies on the cross to demonstrate his profound love for us. Uh, the New Testament tells us he um, bore the cross for the joy set before him. Uh, Ephesians talks about the great love with which he loved us. Uh, we see the love of Jesus even on the cross looking at his mother. Uh, John 13 tells us, having loved his own who are in the world to the end, he loved them to the end. He did it to love us because he wants us to spend eternity with him. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, it was to fulfill scripture. It was to demonstrate God's justice and hatred against sin because sin deserves punishment. But it was also to prove that God was fully merciful. Uh, now, I know that those are ideas, that, but maybe that doesn't make total sense to you. So let me just sort of finish up with maybe a, a thought experiment that may help you understand how the cross works. And I hope this helps you, but think about it sort of this way, right? So imagine... There's someone in your life who really sins against you in a really awful way. I don't mean like they sort of step on your toes. Uh, I don't mean they just say something mean to you on Facebook. I mean like actually they sin against you in a profound way. They, they abuse you. Uh, they lie about you. They send you off to jail. Or uh, maybe they, they, they make you lose your job. Or maybe they you know, divorce you. Or maybe they abandon you. I'm talking about the sin uh, the, the, the type of abuse that you and I receive um, when we can't just sweep it under the rug. You know, there's some things you just got to let go. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. When someone really sins against you, what do you do with that? Um, you know, you and that person, there's this thing, there is a barrier, there is a block, there's a brick wall that you cannot get through. There's this sin, there's this ugliness between you and that person because of what they've done to you because they've sinned against you. And you and I, you know, when that happens, we're only really left with like two options, right? Option one, when someone sins against you, option one is what? 
you can make them feel as much hurt and pain and rejection as they've made you feel, right? If they slandered you, you can turn around and slander them back, right? Um, if they have maligned your character, you can talk about them for the rest of your life about how terrible they are. Um, if they have physically abused you, you can hit them 10 times harder than they hit you, right? Uh, but friends, the ugliness of that sin, right? Uh, you're left with sort of either I can try to enact justice on my own and make the other person suffer, or if you don't want to do that, the only other option you're left with, right, is the painful option of what? You can choose to forgive. You can choose never to bring them up again, even when you have the opportunity to slander them. Uh, even when you have the opportunity to hurt them or get back at them, you can choose to forgive. You can choose not to dwell on it. You see, but friends, that kind of forgiveness, the real forgiveness, you know, really wiping the record clean, it comes with a huge price tag. We can't really afford it. It's too hard for us, right? And even if you try to, it's going to be something that you confront probably every day for the rest of your life because forgiveness is incredibly difficult. Uh, I would say it's even probably impossible apart from God's grace. So if that's how you and I operate and we're the image of God, do you think God's really that much different? Think about it this way. You and I sin against the holy and righteous God every day. <laughs> you and I will probably sin this afternoon. We're probably sinning somehow, some way right now. Uh, we don't just sin one time in an egregious way. We sin over and over and over and over again. Even when we know better, we still choose to sin against the holy and a loving and a righteous God. Even when we know better, we sin repeatedly. Um, we would not have been any different during Jesus' life, we would have either abandoned him or cried, crucify him. Um, nobody looks good in this story except for Jesus. The same weakness, the same sin flows through our veins as it did in Jesus' day. We don't have it within us to forgive like that. And yet God does. You see, instead of um, experiencing our sin and our rejection of him, instead of turning around with sort of a rod of judgment, and smacking you and I, what God does on the cross is he says, all of my justice and my judgment and my wrath against what you've done, I'm going to let it fall on me. I'm going to let the rod of judgment fall on me. I'm going to bear the punishment for the sin. So you can either accept that forgiveness and you can enter into the love of your father and recognize that Jesus really did pay it all for you and he, you, you bear it no more. Uh, God has only love and acceptance for you because Jesus settled your account. Or you're going to stand and God's going to say, you rejected my grace and now you will experience my justice and wrath. I mean, friends, that's the offer of the gospel. And if that offends you, uh, just consider the claims of Christianity. If that, if that offends you, um, God is so loving that he is willing to die for you even though he did nothing wrong. And you still find that lacking? You still find that not enough? What more could God do to redeem you and me from the pit that we've dug ourselves in? See, friends, the power of the cross, when you really start to get this, friends, what happens to you when you really start to experience the power of the cross, uh, Christianity ceases to be sort of just like a moral framework through which you see the world and it 
Christianity really isn't even like a, an intellectual exercise anymore. You know, it happens when you really start to understand that God is both just and merciful at the cross. And you really will not spend eternity apart from him unless you are found in Christ. When that gospel starts to work its way, you know what happens? You move from seeing Christianity as sort of um, an intellectual exercise or a social framework or a wall between you and the bad guys. And instead you move into a, a reality where Christianity actually moves you into a state of awe and wonder because the God of the universe really does love you and me despite our sin. Uh, instead of making demarcation lines everywhere and treating other people as sinners, what it happens is you become consumed with thoughts about God's character. You become humbled. You stand in awe. You want to worship him. Who, what kind of God is like this? Who would do this? Who's this merciful? Nobody's like our God. You move uh, from an intellectual exercise. You move into awe and wonder and praise. It's a different state of living. So friends, I just want to ask, you know, do you, do you know why Jesus died on the cross? Do you know that he took the punishment you deserve? Do you know the offer he provides? I mean, everybody's got to have an answer, right? Um, I don't care if you know why I think Jesus died. I want to know if you know why Jesus died. And friends, uh, that's the invitation to know the power of the cross. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that at the fullness of time, you sent forth your son, born under the law, to redeem those under the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I thank you that in his blood we are washed clean through faith in him alone. And Father, as we prepare to take communion, may we proclaim his death until he returns. And Father, would each one of us experience more and more the power of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.